0: Well good morning friends, glad that you can join us here in person and uh, for those of you who are joining us online, uh, we pray that today will be a time where you will be uh, encouraged by the house, being in the house of the Lord and also being uh, together with the family of the Lord and now we go to the word of the Lord. And I want to begin today by talking about hearing or feeling another's heartbeat There's something special about hearing or actually feeling the heartbeat of another person. We can see a person's manner of walking and talking, of gesturing. We can see their uh, facial expressions and their body language, but to actually hear their heartbeat or feel it is something very different. And uh, something much closer. And I remember when Lori and I were expecting our first child, and the tests came back showing pregnancy. And in those first weeks of pregnancy, you get used to the idea that there is a child coming into your family. But when we had the first ultrasound appointment, we heard the heartbeat. And I think, I can't remember if it was that appointment or not, you could actually see the heart on the ultrasound itself. And suddenly, for me, this child was no longer an idea or a concept. It was a person with their own little heart beating away inside their chest. And my heart changed when I heard that heartbeat. The reality of a little one coming into our lives hit much closer to home. So seeing or hearing or feeling another's heartbeat can draw us closer to them. And the same is true with animals. We have a little dog named Josie, and sometimes I'll pick her up, and my hand goes right where her heart beats. And so I can tell how she's doing by feeling her heartbeat. If she's on her way into a vet appointment and I'm holding her, her heartbeat is going through the roof, and I know she's nervous. But if I'm holding her on a late winter night and it's quiet and calm and her heartbeat is even and steady, I know that she's at peace and relaxed. So hearing and feeling her heartbeat draws me closer to her. And in this series of messages entitled Jesus' Heart for You, we are trying to hear and feel the heartbeat of Jesus himself. And this idea comes from Dane Ortland's book, Gentle and Lowly, where he quotes a pastor from the 1600s named Thomas Goodwin. And he wrote a book in 1651 with the title The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth. And Goodwin wanted to reveal Christ's heart for us. And he writes this about the text that we're going to look at today. I have chosen this text as that which above any other speaks Christ's heart most and sets out the frame and workings of it toward sinners. And it does as it were take our hands and lays them upon Christ's chest to feel how his heart beats and his affections yearn toward us even now as he is in glory. So is it possible to hear or to feel the heartbeat of Jesus. And that's what we're going to try to do today. With this text, another text that focuses on Jesus' heart. And my hope and prayer for you today is that you will first learn more about Jesus' heart for you, and then you will draw nearer to Jesus because you feel his heart for you. So if you have a paper Bible with you today or on your devices, I want to invite you to turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Uh, starting in verse 14, and we'll read to chapter 5, verse 10. So Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14, to chapter 5, verse 10. If you don't have those, uh, those words will be on the screen behind me. So Hebrews 4, chapter 14, and watch again for the heart of Jesus. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, But was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And he also says in another place you are priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through, that, through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who would obey him. Being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So this passage comes from a letter written to Jewish Christians in the first century. They were ones who believed that Christ was, in fact, their Messiah. And they had paid dearly for this belief. They were most likely cast out of their synagogues or places of worship for being non-believers in the Jewish faith. They were suffering economically as fellow Jews would no longer trade with them. And they were outcast socially because they were considered... abhorrent to the faith. So this was very tough, and some reasoned that it would be easier to go back to Judaism, to deny Christ as the Messiah publicly, while maybe still serving him as Messiah privately. So the author of this letter writes, to encourage them and bolster their faith in Christ. And he starts the letter by describing the supremacy of Christ over the angels. And then he portrays Jesus as the founder of salvation and greater than Moses. And in our passage, he talks about the supremacy of Jesus to every human high priest in Israel's history. Now, at that time, the high priest held the highest office in the land. Israel had no king because they were under military occupation by the Romans. So the high priest basically ruled and had many special privileges and responsibilities. One of these involved entering God's very presence once a year on the Day of Atonement. On this day, the high priest would offer up sacrifices for the nation and for himself. It was a day of repentance and confession. And then came this moment where he would pass through what was called a veil between the rest of the temple and into the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was, and there God would descend. And the high priest and God would have this moment of intimacy where the high priest was in God's presence. And with this backstory assumed, Jesus here is described, his high priesthood is described by the author. And he goes on to display the supremacy of Christ's high priesthood to that of the human high priest. So notice the author does this in verse 14 of our passage. He says, since then we have a high priest who has gone or passed through the heavens. Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So do you see the comparison there? The high priest on earth passes through the veil Once a year, repeatedly, whereas Jesus passed through the heavens once for all and is in heaven now. So the supremacy of Christ is a motivator for us to hold fast our confession. This happened when Jesus, after he was resurrected, he ascended into heaven and he was taken to God's throne room where he took his place at his father's right hand and from this supreme place of honor and authority in the universe Jesus now reigns with his father so imagine a double throne and you've got god the father in the center of the throne and at the right hand is jesus god the son and you would think that this would make jesus more distant than ever from us For he left the earth, he no longer walks among us, he reigns as king of kings and lord of lords. What would he want to do with us? Why would he even care about us? Yet, Jesus not only reigns from the right hand of God, he also ministers on our behalf. And in another New Testament letter, the letter to the Romans Chapter 8, verse 34, we learn how Jesus serves as the ultimate high priest now on our behalf. So Romans 8, verse 34 states, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, and who indeed is interceding for us. So Jesus intercedes for us at God's right hand. And back in Hebrews, we see another portrayal of Jesus' activity from the right hand of God. So verse 15 of Hebrews 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. So this verse addresses our concerns that Jesus is inaccessible and uncaring. And it answers the question that we continually ask throughout this series, what kind of a heart does Jesus have for us? And this text teaches teaches us that Jesus' heart includes the ability to sympathize with our weaknesses. So what I've done there is I've reversed the verse The verse itself states that negatively, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Or positively, we have a high priest who has an ability to sympathize with our weaknesses. And this immediately contrasts Jesus with the high priests in the first century. Those high priests all came from wealthy and well-connected families. They were nobility. They were from the upper crust of society and were often very disconnected from ordinary people and their struggles and weaknesses. Jesus, on the other hand, came from Nazareth in that backwards region called Galilee. He was from a country town. His father was a carpenter, not a scholar from the sophisticated schools in Jerusalem, Yet Jesus' upbringing, experiences, and ministry connected to ordinary people like you and like me. But there is more. Jesus not only had a similar upbringing, we're told he sympathizes with us. So what does it mean to sympathize? Well, sympathize is a word that is transliterated directly From the Greek. Not translated, transliterated. Transliteration means letter by letter translation or correspondence. So, you know, the French word arete means in English to stop. That's a translation. But a transliteration would be French arete, English arete. Same letters. And sympathéo in Greek translates to sympathy in English. And sympatheo in Greek means to suffer with. Pathos, suffering. Sim, with. Now last week, if you were here, you might be saying that's the same thing as compassion. And yes, the English word compassion is a compound of two words, passion, suffering, calm, with. A community of suffering. To suffer with or have community with those who suffer. But the word used for compassion that we looked at last week is not sympatheo. It is a different word that means to feel in the inward part. So remember, we talked about how Jesus had a gut reaction, felt deeply for those who were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Here, we're told the high priest sympathizes. So there's probably a slight difference between compassion and sympathy. Compassion means to come alongside with one who is suffering. But sympathy means to suffer with another with an understanding or similar experience of suffering. So compassion is like coming beside a person, seeing that they're suffering, and maybe having no clue what they're going through, but you're just there to support them. Whereas sympathy means to come alongside one with suffering and have at least some experience in the suffering that they are going through. And the author of Hebrews tells us that Jesus has experience in human suffering. He has great experience, particularly in a common area of human weakness, and that is temptation. At the end of verse 15, we read, But one who, in every respect, has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. So Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because he has been tempted as we are in every respect, yet without sin. Now, that phrase at the end of verse 15 raises two questions for me. First, does this mean that Jesus can only sympathize with weaknesses we feel when we're tempted? What about when we feel weak because of the ordinary struggles of life? Well, I think it is legitimate for us to interpret weaknesses as any kind of weakness. Remember that Romans 8.34 text where Jesus, the high priest, is at the right hand of God interceding for us, not just for when we're tempted, but for anything in life, especially all those things listed in Romans 8 that we may struggle with or go through. So, weaknesses... Go beyond our weakness when we are tempted, in my view. Yet note there is a connection between weakness and temptation. We are more vulnerable to temptation when we are weak. The devil came to tempt Jesus after he had been in the desert 40 days without food. So weakness is fertile ground for temptation. And Jesus experienced that. Yet weakness can also include the struggles of life. But the second question raised by this phrase, Jesus was tempted in every respect like we are, yet without sin, is how can he really know what it's like for us then? He he never gave in to temptation. He successfully resisted it always. So does he really know? What it's like to be tempted like we are? And the answer is, he actually has been tempted to a much greater extent than we will ever be. And C.S. Lewis has a great illustration on this. Imagine two people who are walking against a very strong wind. It's a gale force wind that at some point takes all the strength that you have to just take the next step. And after struggling against this wind, one person says, you know what? I can't take it anymore. I'm just going to lie down and wait till the wind passes. But the other person says, I'm going to continue on. And they continue to struggle and continue to take that next step. And they endure and hold on until they finally get to that place of refuge. So who has the greater experience in resisting the wind? The person who never gave in to the wind. Now, the wind symbolizes temptation, and we are like the person who lays down and gives in to temptation when we deem it too strong. We can't take it anymore. We stop resisting, but Jesus is the second person who never stopped resisting temptation until it passed. So he has way more experience going way further down the road of temptation than we ever will. He knows the strength of temptation better than anyone. Have you ever thought about Jesus like this? He is the ultimate resistor of temptation. Any temptation you and I face, he's faced in some form, except in way greater intensity. Jesus, therefore, likely experienced anxiety or the stirrings of fear His humanity recoiled from the horrors of the cross. He experienced the temptation to power and fame. When Satan said to him, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world if you'll just bow down to me. He experienced the temptation to take the easier path rather than the hard path. Father, if it's your will, take this cup from me. If it's possible, take it from me. I don't want to go to the cross. It's Likely, he experienced temptation with women. He experienced temptation for exasperation and bitterness to those who left him. He experienced oppression from the devil, discouraging thoughts. He knows what it is to be thirsty and hungry and despised, to be rejected and scorned and shamed, He knows what it is to be embarrassed, abandoned, misunderstood, falsely accused, tortured, and killed. He knows what it is to be lonely, for his friends abandoned him when he needed them the most. Jesus experienced all kinds of temptation. Yet I think we sometimes can still conclude, well, that was then, and that was in the first century, and we're now living in this world we live in now. He didn't have to deal with the internet and all the crazy things that are going on. He can't know what it's like, but this is why we need scripture to tell us he experienced temptation. In every respect as we do, yet without sin. That's why we need a Bible. To correct our misconceptions about Christ. And he is able to sympathize with our weaknesses. For he has been tempted as we are in every respect. Yet without sin. So with that in mind, let's think again about the question, what good... Does Jesus' sympathy do? We talked last week, what good is compassion? What does it really do in one's life when you receive it? What does sympathy do, the sympathy that Jesus offers? Well, one thing it does is it can lessen any resentment that we have in our hearts towards God or towards Jesus for not knowing what life is like here or not caring about it. Think about the resentment that might have built up in the lives of first century Jews towards their high priest. The high priest lives in Jerusalem. He lives in a virtual palace and he gives out all these pronouncements and judgments and expects people to pay their temple tax. He also has soldiers who will go out and enforce payment of temple tax. He has little knowledge of what life is like in the villages, in the country, in the back country think of the resentment that will build where all we hear from the high priest is temple tax when we're barely surviving out here think about frontline soldiers who receive orders from officers who have no clue what the reality is like on the front line or think about frontline workers today who receive these orders or directives from someone way high up who seems more concerned with their public image or the bottom line than the reality facing the frontline worker. Do you see how that resentment can build for the lack of identification of the one higher up with those on the front lines? Well, that's not true for Jesus. Jesus knows what it's like to live on the front lines because he did. And he came not from a privileged family and privileged position, but from the lowest of the low in the social and economic strata of that society. Jesus is the general who visits the troops on the front lines, not for a photo op, but to see how things really are, and then to decide what to do to help. So he sympathizes with all of our weaknesses. And when we realize this, we can deal with maybe some of the resentment we have towards him for not seeing Or we think, not seeing or paying attention to the way our lives are at. Secondly, another benefit of Jesus' sympathy is it can move us to greater perseverance. It is getting more and more difficult to be a Christian, if you haven't noticed. And similar to these Jewish Christians in the first century, we are mocked, rejected, and marginalized more and more for our faith. And if someone in your school or at your work or in your neighborhood finds out you're one of those kinds of Christians, you might be labeled outcast of society by them. Yet verse 14 tells us that we have a high priest who has gone through the heavens. He himself suffered and died so that we could join him there. He also knows what it's like to go through human weakness and suffer later in our passage in chapter five, verse seven, we're told he offered up prayers and supplication with loud cries and tears so his life was not just some smooth sailing ticket to royalty or chapter eight he learned obedience through what he suffered so so jesus has all these touch points of identification with us and yet he's also the supreme high priest and therefore the author is saying we have reason to hold fast to our confession of faith because jesus is supreme over all of this, even though we are becoming more and more marginalized today. And another benefit of sympathy is it can encourage us to ask for help in time of need. Verse 16 says, Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find help in time of need. So if you're general... Or your boss has visited you right in the front lines and they've taken in the reality of your situation and they've identified with your struggles and they see them. And they say, I'm going to do something to help. And then they do something to help. And they say to you, if you ever need help, make sure you call me. Make sure you, you let me know you are more likely to go for help. When you know that that person cares, that that person works at it for you, that that person is identified with you. In the same way, when you and I realize that Jesus really does sympathize with our weaknesses, really does want to help. We are more likely then to go to him for help. To live out verse 16 rather than say, oh, well, just forget it. They say they're going to help. They're not going to do anything. He will. Jesus experienced human weakness, temptation. And he does not look away when we struggle. When we are tempted even, he sympathizes with our weaknesses. He understands. He felt it, faced it, yet he never sinned. And he's passed through the heavens and he's purchased our passage to join him there one day. And he continues his ministry on our behalf, interceding before the Father and pouring out mercy and grace to help us in time of need. And so today, I want to invite us to practice verse 16. We've heard about Jesus, the great high priest, who sympathizes with our weaknesses, who gives us reason to hold fast to our confession. But we need to go to him, to the throne of grace, to receive mercy and help for time of need. So let us come before the Lord in prayer. And I want you to think about in your life right now something that is, that is really maybe bringing you down, dragging you down. Some problem, some situation, some Um, something that you're walking through right now and it is just really weighing you down or you don't know what to do. And then I want you to imagine that you're coming to Jesus at the right hand of God who is sympathizing with your situation with your weaknesses, and you see his nail-scarred hands and what he went through so that you could actually come into that throne room. And then you lay it out before him, whatever it is. and he responds with mercy and with help. And Lord Jesus, we can place you in that category of the one who never sinned and therefore is so far above us that we think you would never even bother with us pay attention. Be distracted by us. We may think that you just fold your arms and shake your head in disappointment or frustration because we've just failed to come to you again and again, but finally we're here with that thing, with that situation, admitting our need. And whatever the needs are, that you know, you know them intimately, Lord, that are in this room and online right now. We, we lift them to you, Lord, and help us to see your sympathy and feel your heartbeat for us and then receive from you your grace and mercy and help for our needs. We thank you for that and pray this all in your name. Amen.